Hey, this is Quentin Moore, and I'm the pastor of the Father's House, and this is our podcast. Thanks for joining us today. I hope the message inspires you, gives you faith, and lets you see that God is truly moving in your life. We hope you enjoy today's message. Well, I want to talk to you this morning about stubbornly loyal relationships. It's something that I don't think that we as an American society have the ability to follow through with. And I know that that's um, leading with a, a pretty heavy statement, but I do believe that we as followers of Jesus are called to step into these stubbornly loyal relationships. Stubbornly loyal relationships. Before I go any further, um, Cameron, stand up. Cameron's 18th birthday today. Yeah, I told him I was going to embarrass him. I'll just stop there. We could go on and on, especially even just in this week, right? I thought about getting a um, Bernie Sanders cut out of him uh, to sit next to him now. Listen, I'm here for the Bernie Sanders memes and the, the all, they're hysterical. That's not political. That's funny. I saw one this morning. Do you guys know what um, um, steer wrangling is? No? Yeah, sweet. Some of you guys do. Found one with Bernie Sanders wrangling a steer. And uh, I thought it was funny. He was a cross point, apparently. Andy had him at cross point. Maybe he'll make an appearance on our social media account this week. Who knows? We'll see. <laughs> I want to talk to you this morning about stubbornly loyal relationships. Relationships have meant something to me all my life. So from when I was a kid uh, to I, I turned 36 in a couple of weeks. I'm almost to 40. That's exciting. Some people are disappointed about that. Huh? Let's go. My, my very first friend of, um, that I can remember, Gates Hunley, um, met him when I was two years old. Still a very good friend of mine today. Relationships, some of them come and go, but I want to talk to you this morning about what it means to be stubbornly loyal in these relationships, something that I think that we do struggle with today. And it's going to take me a little bit to get there because um, I also have unpacked some things in, in my own life and God's showing me some stuff in scripture that I hadn't seen before. Anybody ever had those experiences? Um, I, I, those are fun. And um, because I get to do what I get to do, I get to explain that to you. And maybe, just maybe, you'll have a bit of an epiphany. One of the things that Heather and I do each year um, at, at the beginning of the year is to sit down and write out goals. We write out goals for our, our home, our boys, um, the, the renovations that she wants me to do. <laughs> we write personal goals, what, what, what we would like to accomplish um, in our lives throughout the year. We, we write goals for the ministries that we lead here and what we'd like to see in each quarter and um, and by the end of the year, and we write goals. This this year, we wrote goals for um, animals, cows and chickens and pigs. And some of you guys are like, "What are we doing?" And hang around; you'll understand at some point in time. One of the things, though, that I that I realized as I was um, beginning to look over last year, realizing that 
I'm not, last year has unfortunately continued to carry into this year with COVID and things along those lines. But as you, as you, as you think and you pray and you reflect on last year, I realized that um, I almost went into a mode of protection. Instead of radically living for Jesus, I've almost stepped into this mode of, of protection. See, what we have to understand is that a, a, a Christian faith does not work in a lukewarm framework. We know that what the Bible talks about us being lukewarm, right? That he's going to spit us out of his mouth. That this Christian life, the, the, the teachings of Jesus doesn't necessarily fit into this American life. So what is, what is, as I was thinking of questions and just writing them down, what does following Jesus radically look like for us today? What, what does having that faith look like in my life today? If Jesus were to write a, a letter to the Father's house today, what would it say? What would he call us to today? What would he speak to us to today? Now, that, that, that is defined, that call is defined by context. I get that. There's a, a, a phrase in sports that, that says, the clock determines the play. What that means is if you're in the first quarter, more than likely your coach is going to be a little more aggressive in the play calling than, than what he would in, in the fourth quarter with two minutes left, whether you have Patrick Mahomes or not. Go baseball. Oh. What are the plays that we need to call today? What are the plays that we need to call today for our future, for our history. It's pretty obvious to me that after walking out of last year, we have a lot of recovering that we have to do. Recovering the credibility even of our own faith. It's not lost on most people that we've walked out of a year that, that, is, that has deeply divided our country. We've come out of a year that, um, where there has been more scandal uh, amongst church leaders. We've come out of a year that has seen compromise and political alliance, the rise of some sort of ungodly nationalism. And to, to some, it seems like the church has almost become part of the problem instead of realizing that we have the keys to the solution. It's a perspective. How, how, how do we realign ourselves how do we change that perspective? Or to view ourselves as a creative minority. What's well, a creative minority? Well, I'll give you a definition here in a little bit, but I kind of want to walk it out because God showed me some stuff in scripture th this week that I teach teenagers every Wednesday night. And, and I'm going to quote some scripture here in a little bit that if I just gave you those scriptures, Maybe you'd have the ability to understand what it was that I'm talking about. But those teenagers are a lot like me in that I don't just need um, a, a love your neighbor. Um, 
I need to see how it w- was walked out in the Bible. Are, are, you, are you like that at all? I need to, need to see, okay, so how does, how does that actually look like? What, what, is it, what does it actually mean? So a, a creative minority, uh, the, the, this term was used by a rabbi named Jonathan Sachs in 2013. He defined this, um, this creative minority as the Jewish perspective of how they thrived regardless of the circumstances that they found themselves in. They were viewed, they, they viewed themselves as a, uh, as a minority, not one of fear, not one of, uh, of struggle, not one of resistance, but one that was creative. That they were committed to working for the flourishing of whatever community they found themselves in. We see the same thing in Jeremiah 29. If you have your Bible, Jer- open it up to Jeremiah 29, um, 5 and 7. I'm not going to stay here long. Um, I, I've got a bunch of scriptures, but um, you, you can kind of follow along if you want to. Jeremiah 29, they were talking about seeking the peace and the prosperity where they were instead of where they thought they should be. Jeremiah 29, 5 through 7 says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But see the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find welfare. We have to understand that this is, this is a, a paradigm shift for the Jewish folks, but it's also a paradigm shift even for us. Jeremiah, Jeremiah was, was prophesying to the Israelites. Israel was just defeated by Babylon. Jeremiah wrote to the Jews um, that had been taken captive by Babylon. And here, here's, here's, the, here's the thing that... This is a perspective change for the Israelites. See, in that defeat from Babylon, they destroyed Solomon's temple. And Solomon's temple was the central symbol of their nation. But it was not just the central symbol of their nation. It was also where they believed God to be in their midst. Psalm 137, 1 and 4 says, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord in a foreign land? But here's, here's what's massively counterintuitive to, the, to, to what the Israelites knew. And, and to be honest with you if, if you, if you catch it, you'll understand that it wasn't just the Jewish people. It's us even today. For the first time, Jeremiah was looking at the exile saying, It's not about the temple. God is with you right now. From a distance of of time, it's it's hard to understand probably how revolutionary this was, but religions uh, until then were completely linked geographically, politically, and culturally to these defined spaces. So what exile meant to these guys was that their nation was defeated, which meant their God was defeated. And if their God and nation was defeated, you had no choice. Those exiles, those Israelites now had to become Babylonian. But Jeremiah is sitting here saying, no, 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 no. No, I need you to build houses. 
in that land of exile. I need you to marry people. I need you to plant gardens. You have the ability to flourish in the midst of exile because God's not in the the temple of Solomon. God is with you right now. So whatever it is that you're going through right now, you have the ability to plant houses. You have the ability to plant gardens. You have the ability to, your life can flourish regardless of the struggle that you see, regardless of the turmoil that you're in. God is with you right now. Now, this isn't about God being here. Yes, the Bible says where two or more come together that he would be here. And he is. He is, but he has never left. He has never forsaken. He walks through the valley. He's not on the other side of the valley. He walks with you on the mountaintop. He is with you now. This is what gives you the ability to look at a diagnosis and say, I'm, I trust you. This is what gives you the ability to look at a financial struggle and say, I'm going to tithe anyway. Because I believe in the... (sighs) We see Jesus come into our lives. We ask... Romans 9, 10, 9, right? Romans 10, 9, and 10. You believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. I don't wake up the next day desiring to see some sort of instantaneous miracle, but a change has happened in the inside of you. And you walk it out. And Jesus is stubbornly loyal to each and every single one of us. And this morning, I come to you realizing that we have gone through some stuff last year, realizing that some of that stuff has even carried into 2021. But, you know, you talked about walking in the power of God. And if God is not powerful, then I've misunderstood something. I believe in a God that is powerful. I believe in a God that is stronger than anything that we come in contact with. And I believe that God allows me to put my faith in him. Uh, Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30. I just talked to you yesterday about it. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That rest is what carries us through. That rest is what, that is a stubbornly loyal relationship. And that is the call of Jesus for you and I. You have no idea where I'm in my notes. A creative minority. The ability to flourish wherever we see ourselves. The ability to flourish even in the midst of exile. Dr. Martin Luther King even spoke to, about creative minorities. He said, during this period, we will have to depend on that creative minority of true believers. The hope of the world is still dedicated, uh, is still in dedicated minorities, the trailblazers in human, academic, scientific, and religious freedom have always been in the minority. It will take such a small, committed minority to work unrelentingly to win the uncommitted majority. Such a group may well transform America's greatest dilemma into an almost glorious opportunity. It is not about how popular we are. It's about understanding the potence of what we carry. And his name is Jesus Christ. It's not about the size of our movement. It's about the strength in Christ. 
how do we become a creative minority? What's the definition of creative minority? Well, I'll tell you. A creative minority is a Christian community in a web of stubbornly loyal relationships knit together in a living network of persons who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of the world. I think a lot of times we are so impacted by the cultural dynamics that we lose focus on how Jesus calls us to step into relationship. John 13, 34, and 35 says, A new commandment I give to you, to love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. In order to step into a creative minority, we have to step into stubbornly loyal relationships. Jesus says the proof of discipleship is not in how much you read the Bible. The proof of discipleship is not how much you pray. The proof of discipleship is not understanding a Christian worldview. The proof of discipleship is the love you have for your neighbor. And that love has to be marked by Jesus Christ. Stubborn, loyal relationships. Jesus says in Luke uh, 6.32, if you love those who love you, why should you get any credit for that? I love it when Jesus is just that plain, right? If you love those who love you, why should you get credit for that? For sinners love those who love them. Part of the challenges we live in today is that there's so much division that it is so easy for us to step into the way the world looks at relationships. And the way the world looks at relationships is you love those who like you. It's easy to love those who agree with you, but as soon as they disagree, we're out. As soon as they disagree, we bounce on the relationship. As soon as we disagree, we break relationship. We step out of marriages because they're just, well, too tough. I like that Annie laughed at that and you didn't. (laughs) It's true, right? I'm going to expand a little bit here because everyone wants to see a miracle. We all know the scriptures. I'm going to repeat myself here in a second because it's in in, in my notes. We all can recite the miracles of Jesus. And yet we look at marriage as if it's just a legal contract. Do you ever want to see a miracle? It is when two people come together as one and that is signed, sealed, and delivered by God. And God doesn't break covenants. God says, I want to work through the tough times with you. Why? Because we learn things. Why? Because we grow together. This is why we have to be stubbornly loyal in our relationships. Because we learn things about each other. We, we grow with each other. We desire to have tough conversations, not because we want to debate, but because we have the ability to step outside of our own understanding and see something See something different for once. Stubbornly loyal relationships say, I'm here for it, man. (laughs) 
Jesus says you have to have a different kind of love. Even the pagans love each other. Why are you, why are you excited about that? Stubbornly loyal relationships, they mark us as people of Christ. And the way we frame these relationships, and this is something I think that is very important to understand, the way you frame these relationships is actualizing in relationship the theological reality of those scriptures. I'm going to repeat that because he said amen, and anytime he says amen, I think I may have done it right. (laughs) The way you frame these relationships is actualizing in those relationships the theological reality of the scriptures. So the scriptures isn't just what I get from it. The scripture actually tells us how to step into relationship, and I'll read it for you. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, therefore I, a prisoner for the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling for you have been called by God always be humble and gentle be patient with each other making allowances for each other's faults because of your love make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit binding yourselves together with peace for there is one body and one spirit just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, in all, and living through all. This is the theological reality that we are united. He gives these implications, one, 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 one. He couldn't make it any clearer that the heavenly realm, in that heavenly realm, we have everything in common. We may not have everything in common on this earth, but everything in common according to the scripture, everything, we have everything in common according to that scripture. Yep, we so often are defined by the relationships in which the culture sees it. This is gonna be hard to live live in stubborn loyalty to each other. Our culture knows nothing about loyalty. Like I said earlier, we we step into relationships and break them as easy as we step into them. We tap out of marriages because we think that it's just too hard. We're not a people trained committed to live a loyal life. But thank goodness our call is a call to Jesus. The one who spells out how to get back on track. Jesus looks, think of your relationship with, with Jesus for a moment. I can think even, even as I have, um, you know, over the years, have stepped into this faith and rededicated my life to the Lord. I can think of the times where I've pushed God away. I can think of the times where I have turned my heart away from God. Well, I wanted nothing to do. But what does Jesus do? He finds me, Amen. picks me up, and takes me out of the mess. He refused to let me drift away. He's refused. I do not care where you think you are in your relationship with Jesus. He has never left your side. 
I do not care how much sin you think you have in your life. Jesus says, buddy, I've already forgotten about it. That's what the Bible says. Jesus says there is nothing that has the ability to separate us from, separate me from you. Nothing. This last summer and, and then into the fall has been one of the hardest seasons for me to do my job, which is actually saying something because I did my job through chemo. This last season, and I, and I, I, don't, I don't know that I can speak for Q uh, and Annie. They've been doing this a lot longer than I have. So this, but for me, this last season, it, it, it's made it at times hard to pastor. <coughs> Apparently Annie agrees with me. People were living in such a heightened state of anxiety that some conversations weren't even rational. Many conversations weren't kind. They weren't even necessarily framed properly. But as I, as I had started thinking about the year and started praying about um, even just this sermon, I began to see a trend. Some people leaned in. Some people pushed through out of stubborn loyalty. And some people drifted based just off of cultural preferences or perceived wrongs. But I began to realize that those people who pressed in, who said, I'm gonna lean into this, who said, I'm gonna have the hard conversations in a godly way, I'm gonna work this out, those relationships are stronger today than they ever have been. And now have a foundation to build off of the next time we step into conflict because we will step into conflict. But those who drifted away, who broke relationships and said, I gotta step away, what foundation do they have to work off of? It just makes it that much easier to bounce the next time conflict comes up. But Jesus calls us to be stubbornly loyal though. Jesus calls us to be stubbornly loyal. I cannot just, I didn't do this first service. I'm going to do it this service. If you have drifted away from someone last, since last year because of perceived wrongs or because of, would you just pray about forgiving them? Would you just, when, when we get out of here today or whatever, I, I, listen, I'm not, I'm not saying you weren't right or I'm not saying you weren't wrong. But I, I think I've laid enough groundwork here this morning already to say that I don't know that it matters, but what does matter is the, the loyalty in that relationship. So if, if there's a relationship in your life that you walked out of in 2020 that needs to be restored in some way, shape, or form, would you just pray about forgiving them? And realize that you're asking for forgiveness, not wanting to get something out of it, but genuinely forgiving them. I want to be a stubbornly loyal friend. And listen, we're gonna get this wrong this year. This isn't something that we're gonna be perfect at. You're not always gonna get it right. I'm not always gonna get it right. But can we not hold up the scorecards and the judgment of others? Can we put down the judgment and love each other in deep loyalty? We're gonna need each other in the future, guys. 
We're gonna need each other. We still believe and pray for the lost to come into this building and I'm gonna need you to help with that. We are gonna need you to help with the discipleship of these people because I want them to step into Jesus. I want them to step into that relationship in a loving, healthy, and loyal culture. In a time of decline, we are called to be a creative minority, stubbornly loyal to each other, just like the Israel, Israelites were in Babylon. We must stop looking to the culture, to the government, to right wrongs, and realize that God has called us to build houses, to plant gardens, and to have babies, to not decrease, but to multiply. Our faith is not in Babylon, Jerusalem, or any other nation. Our faith is in one king named Jesus Christ that will change the lives that is the hope of the world. When we read the New Testament, many times we read from an individualistic lens or a a sensational lens. I talked briefly a little bit ago about we we all have those those miracles that we like. We all have those favorite favorite scriptures. But even when when you look at the book of Acts, we realize that it's not just certain things, but it is a network of people stubbornly loyal to each other continuing to have a desire to grow the kingdom of God. It's not just about the, the, the few out front, but it is about in the background, the people who fought and, and fought and fought just to gain ground, to, to extend the kingdom of God. It's not about being up here and preaching. It is about continuing to live as a network together, stubbornly loyal in our relationships so that one more soul comes to know Jesus Christ. So what what does a stubbornly loyal relationship look like? How do do I do that? How do do we as the community of the Father's house be stubbornly loyal to each other? I've got five things. Number one, you need friends who will risk for you. You need friends who will risk for you. There's a couple in the Bible named Priscilla and Aquila, and they were Paul's companions. Romans uh, 16, 3-5 says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus, that they risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all of the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets in their house. Paul says, it's, it's not just me, it is all of the churches of the Gentiles. All of the churches, who, who was Priscilla and Aquila? Well, they were a married couple. Um, they were a husband and wife, and they were running around and serving God and, and helping the church. They helped out Apollos with all of the theological blanks he had. They worked alongside Paul uh, when he was a tent maker. They followed him in his ministry. These were people who were willing to risk their resources, risk their money, voluntarily moved locations repeatedly, risked their time. We need to be a friend that takes a risk. 
And in order to be stubbornly loyal, we need a friend who will take a risk. Number two, you need a friend who will refresh your spirit. You need friends, some of us are in relationships with friends, significant others, who are nothing of a refreshment. And we walk away from those relationships, from those gatherings, from those hangings outs, and we wonder, why am I friends with that individual? They do nothing for my spirit. And yet next Tuesday when they call for 35 cent wings, you go to Buffalo Wild Wings anyway. I think I still got that on Tuesdays. Yeah. Because, well, maybe this is just what I'm supposed to be in. I can tell you of friendships in my life that refresh my spirit and I can't wait to be around them. Some of them are family members. Some of them are friends. My wife refreshes my spirit. There are people in our lives that we need to refresh their spirits. There's this guy in the Bible uh, that doesn't get a lot of play, but um, he is key to refreshing the spirit of Paul. His name's Onesiphorus. That's two, two services in a row that I got it right, Pete. You should be proud of me. Look at that name. Some of you guys are going to name your kids that. <laughs> Onesiphorus. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. How many of you guys have friends that you will not let them see the skeletons in your closet? That's not a, a, a friend that is very refreshing. Why? Well, probably because you're holding out on them, not necessarily you in that situation. That's a different service, sorry. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. I'm not by my notes. Thank you. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And he and you well know all of the service he has rendered for me in Ephesus. He was a refresher. He wasn't worried about the chains that Paul carried. He was a refresher. It says, when I was in Rome, he searched hard for me and found me. And some of us think, oh, big deal. I don't, I don't understand. We, you need to understand this. It's not like, it's not like you have Life 360 on your iPhone and you can find him. And if you don't know what Life 360 is, you are either too old that, that, and don't have kids in the home, or your kids are too young and don't have cell phones. But when you have a 17-year-old boy in the house, you'll put Life 360 on the iPhone, huh? Am I right, Cam? Why do you know that story? That is a story <laughs> that is for a different service. He's willing to enter into the drama He stayed through different seasons and different shifts of Paul's ministry. 
It says, you know very well how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. We have to understand, we're talking about Rome and Ephesus. There's 2,000 miles between the two of them, and it, they ain't got highways. 2,000 miles. Here's a friend who searched hard for a man simply to refresh his spirit. One of my favorite authors, Henry Nouwen, says this. When we honestly ask ourselves which person in our lives means most to us, we can often find, we often find that it is, it is those who, instead of giving advice, solutions, or cures, have chosen rather to share our pain and touch our wounds with a warm and tender hand. The friend who can be silent with us in the moment of despair or confusion, who can stay with us in an hour of grief and bereavement, who can tolerate not knowing, not curing, not healing, and face us, face us the reality of our powerlessness. That is a friend who cares. This is what Onesiphorus did for Paul. This is what we are to do for each other. When we see someone struggling, we pour our life into their spirits. When, how do we lift them up? How, how do we encourage these people? We see these people hurting every single day and we know that they're hurting and they may be our friends, but we hold some stuff back so we aren't completely emptied, right? And we've missed the fact that God just continues to pour hope and joy into our lives so we can slough that off to other people. It's not about holding what God has given us, but it is about giving it away. That is how we are a refresher to other people's spirits. Number three, we need friends who encourage us. We need friends who encourage us. We need a Barnabas. Barnabas was a massively generous person. In fact, in, in Acts 4, I talked about uh, the, the people, um, the, these people that would sell their land, and Barnabas was one of those individuals. He had a piece of land and he sold it for the church. What we have to remember uh, in the New Testament is that only about 1% of the Jewish community, or, um, community had their, ancestor, uh, their ancestors' land. So it was a big deal to give away what their ancestors had given them. And he did it to encourage. He did it to grow the kingdom. He believed in people. He brought Saul into uh, a ministry environment where his destiny could be released. This is what encouragement does. I don't know about you, but I have gone through seasons in my life where I didn't think very highly of myself. And it is those individuals, uh, these encouragers, that get me to open my eyes. You do realize that Jesus works through you, right? Do you believe that? So when you speak words, you understand that sometimes they're just not words, but they are words of life. That they open people's eyes to something that they didn't see themselves. And a lot of times, that is the relationships that we are in. We, don't, we get so focused on our sin that we forget that there's freedom in Jesus. We get so focused on what we screw up in that sometimes we need that encourager to say, oh, maybe I 
Maybe I can do that. George Adams says encouragement is oxygen for the soul. First Thessalonians 5.11 says, therefore, encourage anyone and build each other up just as in fact you're doing. It's so easy right now to be a critic. It's so easy right now in our culture to be an armchair cynic. We sit back and point out the flaws of people that are just trying to do their best rather than actually doing our best to encourage one another. You've heard the term, leaders, leadership is hard, pray for your leaders. The fact of the matter is, guys, and we all know this, life is hard. Life is hard. Life hurts sometimes. So why not be an encourager? Why not encourage someone in your life today? Why not be that stubbornly loyal individual that says, I am going to give everything I can to encourage this individual, knowing that God will pour back into me. I'm not trying to get something out of it. I'm trying to uplift someone else. Number four, we need people, we need friends who will fight for us. I told first service and it didn't really mean too much to them because there isn't teenagers in the room, but I have realized with a 17-year-old and a 10-year-old and an 8-year-old and a 5-year-old that is a spider monkey, (laughs) that when you say fight, I'm not... I say fight and Cam's ears perks up. Who who are we fighting? No. We're not fighting anybody. We're not punching anybody. Jesus is never going to ask you to punch someone. It's not going to happen. But to fight, to battle in a spiritual way, to pray with, for Kent caught me uh, right before I came down here, second service, and they were praying for me. That's battling, guys. That's what it means to battle for people. You pray for them. You're struggling with with depression. I'm I'm with you. I'm praying for you. I will fight for you. I will do anything. You're in a financial struggle. I'll believe for you. I'll believe as you tithe that God continues to work in your spirit. I believe I will fight. I am here to fight with you. It reminds me of the story of uh, Ruth and Naomi. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. I will go where you will go. I will battle with you. Talk about a stubbornly loyal relationship. How about David and Jonathan? Talk about a stubbornly loyal relationship. Saul, who is Jonathan's dad, is out to kill David. Not just once, but a whole lot of times. And Jonathan uses the resources he has to say, I see God on David. I don't see God on dad anymore. So I'm going to fight. I'm going to battle with David. I think there is something so very, very powerful about being willing to contend for the hearts of the people that sit in the sanctuary. But we don't want to do it together by ourselves. We do very much want to do it together. We just don't want to do it by ourselves. I need your help. 
stubbornly loyal relationships knitted together for a community to thrive. Number five, the last thing, and there's a reason it's the last thing. We need friends who are loyal truth tellers. We got through all the rest of them really good, right? A fret refresher, an encourager, risk taker. Yeah, I want some. We don't really like being told the truth, do we? No, maybe, maybe I'll just speak for myself. Not all the time do I like being told the truth, Mark. It's not always pleasant. It doesn't feel very good. You want to get mad at them even though you know it's the truth. Proverbs 27, 5 and 6. Better is one who rebuke, uh, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted but enemies multiply kisses. We all have blind spots. Every single one of us has a bias. We've been formed this way from, for years. But the reality of it is, is that I need someone to be able to look at me in, sto- in stubborn, loyal relationships and say, buddy, I love you and I love you so much that I'm going to tell you you're wrong here. And that relationship is not broken because it's not based on a feeling but based on a person. And his name is Jesus. One of the greatest stories I could tell you here is the, the relationship between Nathan and David. You see in in 2 Samuel. Nathan interacts with David a couple of different times here. And the first time, um, David goes to Nathan and says, hey, I'm going to do this. And and, um, Nathan immediately says, yeah, man, in the name of the Lord, go do it. Later that night, Nathan, the the scripture says, Nathan is praying uh, to God. And God tells him, hey, go back and tell Nathan that this is what I said. He goes back and tells Nathan, and it's a, a minor adjustment. Cool. David looks at him and says, yeah, man, no problem. Let's do it. A couple of chapters later, there's a parable that Nathan tells David, and it's of a, a, a rich man that has lots of herds, many animals, and a poor man that has one lamb. Now, Nathan tells David this parable because of what he has done, David being. You know the story of Bathsheba? Bathsheba was married, but David wanted her. And so David, being the king, sent Bathsheba's husband to the front lines. Essentially, he knew he was going to die. So David then could have Bathsheba. We find Nathan going to David and saying, Hey, so I want to tell you this story. And there's this story of a rich man. He's got all these animals. And there's, a, and there's this poor man, and he's got one. And this, this, the rich man had a, a guest coming over. And instead of taking one of his herd, one that, an animal that was in his herd, he stole the poor man's lamb. He sacrificed it, and they ate it. And, and the, the scripture says that David instantaneously was filled with anger. 
David's statement was, he, the rich man has to pay the, the poor man back fourfold. And oh, by the way, the rich man should die. Nathan looks at David and says, you're the rich man. Now, let's be honest. One of two, way, one of two things is going to happen here. You're either going to cut ties because you just got called on the carpet and you don't want anybody to find out. You're going to break that relationship because the truth hurts. Or you're going to find yourself on your knees repenting before God. We need loyal truth tellers in our lives to call us on the carpet when we need to be called on the carpet in love. So that I know that even in my bias, I can repent. Even in my blind spots, I can repent. The cool thing about David and Nathan is where was Nathan when David was on his deathbed? He was by his side. Nathan never left David and David never left Nathan. We are called to step into stubbornly loyal relationships that create a minority where we have the ability to flourish and in our flourishing, the community flourishes. In our flourishing, the community flourishes. We risk for one another, we refresh one another, we encourage one another, we fight for one another, and we tell the truth to one another. Stand with me. Hey, I hope the message truly inspired you today. If it did, do a couple things for me. Subscribe to our show and it'll just drop right into your feed and you can stay current with all that we're doing. The second thing is, is if you've been impacted by this ministry, you can click the link right there in front of you and you can become one of our givers and that'll help us to keep spreading the gospel and the good news around the world. Everyone needs to hear the good news right now, maybe more than any other time. So God bless and I'll see you next time.